And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. And I have two of my good friends on the phone from both from Elmer's Memorial Hospital. First, I will introduce uh, Pamela Dunley. She's the president and CEO of the hospital. How are you, Pam? I'm great. Good. And uh, also we have with us Dr. Michelle Mazir, who is the president of the medical staff. How are you, Dr. Mazir? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Rich. Good. Um, so what in the heck is going on? COVID is back rearing its ugly head. I'm sure that you two ladies are going crazy like all of your colleagues and the entire world is right now. So I guess that was a rhetorical question, what's going on. I'm not really looking for an answer. (laughs) But why don't one of, if one of you could kind of give me an idea of what's going on in the hospital as far as number of inpatients with COVID right now. Yes, this is Pam. I will be happy to. But first, I want to give you a weather report. There is beautiful, beautiful snow outside my window. And I'm hoping all the snow is coming down so it can wipe away all this disease we have. But maybe not. I'm hoping my microphone doesn't pick up the snow plow that keeps going by my window. (laughs) Well, hopefully not. Um, So let's talk about numbers. So the last time we talked was November 9th. So it's been, you know, almost over two and a half, over one and a half months, and a lot has changed. So back then, we were kind of holding steady, uh, you know, high 10, 12, whatever. So we were 13 plus patients that were COVID positive, and all of those patients were non-vaccinated. And Today, I will say at Elmhurst Hospital, we have 73 COVID positive patients, so a jump of 60 additional COVID positive patients. And of those 73, seven of them are ventilated, so quite a few of them are ill. Um, Of those, 60 of them are not vaccinated, and 13 were vaccinated. And the, thir- the ones that are in the critical care, none of them are vaccinated. So all the Vente patients are not vaccinated. The uh, death rate at um, Elmhurst last time, we had 203 people who had died from COVID throughout the two years we've been doing this. And at this point, we have 218. So over the month and a half, we have had 15 additional deaths. And I think for a long time we were not having deaths and we were not having people vented and things have changed and not changed for the best. DuPage County went from 112,000 positive to 137,000 positive and their deaths went from 1,477 up to 1,526. The state went from 1.73 1.73 million positive to 2.08 million positive, and deaths went from 28,877 to 30,747, which it's really sad to think that our state over two years has had over 30,747 people pass away from COVID. The uh, good thing is that we had discharged 2,092 
patients from the hospital uh, healthy from COVID, and now we have discharged 2,305. So that's additional over 200 patients in a month and a half that have been discharged. So we have 73 positive patients, but those 73 are not ones that have been here a long time. They keep coming in and getting discharged and more coming in. So there's a lot of people that are turning up positive. And the only other really good news is we still remain at a 97% uh, recovery rate. So, you know, leads to my next question, which is here we are um, in December, the year's almost over. And the last time you had this many inpatients was about a year ago. And in that time, there've been three vaccines that have been approved under emergency authorization, at least one under permanent, I believe. So we've got all these vaccines out there now that we didn't have a year ago, and we still have so many hospitalizations. Is it in general the seriousness of the hospitalizations that are changing? Is it the the variants? Why, why do we still have so many hospitalizations if we have so many people vaccinated that weren't vaccinated a year ago? Well, because 80% of those people that have been hospitalized are still unvaccinated. So it is because of the rate of people that choose to stay unvaccinated that we continue to have the hospitalizations. And as I said, 100% of the, the critical care admissions are unvaccinated. So many of our patients also, the ones that have been vaccinated that get admitted, it's because they have underlying health conditions like cardiac issues, pulmonary disease, hypertension, obesity, diabetes. And, you know, and, and, and then we're seeing that people are really tired of being alone. So Thanksgiving, getting back together, um, people going out in groups. I heard of a whole group going salsa dancing and a lot of people getting sick. Uh, people just are not being as careful. And so if you have comorbid conditions, even if you're vaccinated, you, are, you can get COVID. So uh, we've heard a lot about the fact that maybe the Omicron uh, variant is not as serious in terms of its effects on most patients as some of the other variants, but maybe it's more transmittable. Does that seem to be the case? So, Doctor, do you want to answer that? I feel a doctor should answer that one. Of course, I'm glad to. I think that what we are seeing is that Omicron does not necessarily care if you were vaccinated. So we are seeing Omicron in our vaccinated population, but like Pam spoke to, that vaccinated population is getting mild illness. So they're getting cold symptoms, body aches, chills, maybe some low grade fever, um, and are, are still really for the most part avoiding hospitalization. And even when they are getting hospitalized because they have comorbidities, they're not ending up critically ill in the ICU or dying. So um, I know that more people are getting it because it is so easily transmitted, but just overall getting less ill when vaccinated. Is there um, any truth to the, the rumor that we hear that um, a lot of diseases, when they, when they do develop variants, Many times over, over time, those variants become less serious and have less effects, or is that, is that just pure garbage, so to speak? I'm not sure that they become less serious or um, have less effects, but I think that what we see happening, and we see this with the flu every year, you know, the flu vaccine, uh, the components of the flu vaccine change depending on what flu variants are out there. And so I think that our pharmaceuticals, we tailor our pharmaceuticals to what we are seeing. 
And then that's what helps us keep everybody with milder illness. So um, is it possible that we will see a variant that is totally resistant to the vaccine in the near future and that we'll need to develop another vaccine just similar to the flu? Personally, that's where I think we're headed. I think we're probably headed to um, some timely, whether it's a six-month or an annual booster to deal with these variants that are evolving. And then will it likely be... um, Will they likely, the the um, pharmaceutical companies, will they likely be able to adjust annually or every six months that cocktail, do you think, so that it, it just like they do the flu shot, or is this totally different? And, you know, it seems analogous to me, but maybe it really isn't. I think that I the thing I keep saying about the vaccines all along and what we keep hoping for the vaccines is the purpose of the vaccine, really the number one purpose was to prevent critical illness and death from a virus. And it's still doing that. The vaccine is still doing that. So in general, the vaccine is really still working. Might the next variant evade this vaccine and the pharmaceutical companies will have to um, e- evolve, you know, evolve the vaccine. Yes, I think that's that's a possibility. As it as it stands right now, uh, there are seventy three uh, inpatients with COVID at Elmhurst Hospital. So my question is: Is there a significant number of those patients that were hospitalized for a completely different reason, like they broke their arm or they they uh, had kidney failure or something, and they were found to have COVID? Um, by just because they had to take a test at the hospital or most of these 73 in there just for the treatment of COVID? So let me answer that one. Um, most of our admitted patients were hospitalized for the treatment of COVID. There were just a few, uh, actually a total of two, that were admitted for another health condition and it was incidentally found that they were positive for COVID due to, due to the testing procedures we have. What we are also finding right now is there are a lot of people who want to come in for some kind of elective procedure and we test for COVID and they're being canceled because a lot of people are finding out they're positive with COVID that didn't even realize that they were sick. So we've had to cancel quite a few procedures because of people being positive with COVID. And I would assume most of those. And Rick, if I can, sorry to interrupt you, if I could just expand on what Pam just said. Um, What we're seeing in the clinical setting is that because some of these symptoms are so mild, when I go back into a room and I say your COVID test is is positive, people are floored. They're shocked. They can't believe that this is actually COVID. So I think everybody needs to have a new kind of heightened awareness that your mild runny nose, your mild headache, your mild body ache, your mild sore throat, all of that could actually be COVID. And so that's what I think you know, people are saying, oh, I've not really been sick. But when you dig deeper, you realize, oh, you're right, I did. I've had some congestion. I've had some mild symptoms. I just didn't think it was possible that it could be COVID. And chances are a lot of those folks, if not all, are probably vaccinated too, right? And that's why their symptoms are so mild in, in at least a lot of the cases? Precisely. So have you had a lot of folks that are under the age of 18 hospitalized? I mean, not a lot, but have you had a handful? So we don't hospitalize pediatric patients at our hospital. We do see kids that have COVID, 
but at Edward Hospital, I get a, a report every day about who's in the hospital with COVID, and usually there's one or two over the last few few weeks that are in with COVID. So not there's not a huge run on kids being hospitalized, but kids are getting COVID. I don't know which one of you wants to take this next one, but can you kind of give us a, an overview of the latest CDC guidance as it relates to quarantining or isolating, you know, based on whether you have actually tested positive or whether you were exposed, kind of give us what the latest, greatest advice is. I know Michelle wants to answer this one because this is her favorite topic. <laughs> I bet. Uh, I, this, this is currently creating a lot of distress for us as a healthcare system because the CDC on Christmas Eve, dropped some recommendations that apply to healthcare workers. And then yesterday they dropped this and they differ a little bit. So we are tackling our healthcare workers return to work different than what came out for the general public yesterday. Um, and I would recommend if, if people have not seen it, it's very easy to find on the CDC website. There is a very nice chart um, that breaks it down by um, if you test positive, if you were exposed, if you are vaccinated, boosted, or if you are not. So I would encourage everybody to go to the website to really take a look at that chart. But the bottom line is, if you test positive for COVID currently, re this, these are the new recommendations, regardless of vaccine status, you now isolate for five days. If after that five days you have no symptoms or your symptoms are getting better, you can leave your house. The important thing is that you still have to follow strict mask precautions for another five days. And so strict mask precautions means you are not going to a restaurant where you take your mask up and down. You can go to the grocery store where you don't remove your mask from your face but you just really have to be careful in that second five days that you are not removing your mask when you're in the presence of other people. And all of that return, um, all of that getting out of isolation hinges on having no fever um, prior to you being able to follow that. And then as you, so that, that's for testing positive. And then if you're exposed, um, the difference is that they recommend um, testing on day five if possible. Now, that gets tricky because we know that testing is, um, testing is limited availability and people are having trouble finding testing. So that gets tricky for those that are exposed. But basically, it is, you know, where it, it's really that 10 days of masking is important. So. They, they've let us come out of our houses a little bit earlier, but everybody needs to be to remember that the mask is the important thing for the additional five days. And again, all the details are on the website and it's spelled out in a very nice table. Is there any chance you could um, get me the link and I will uh, post that on our Facebook page? I sure can. That would be great. Just in case that's, you need to drill down to it a little bit. Um, what is the, what is your best advice or guidance for somebody who has been exposed to somebody who's been exposed, so to speak? So if, if a person has been closely exposed to somebody with COVID, you know, within six feet for longer than 15 minutes, and then 
there with somebody else is does that person need to to do anything too? that second person that they're um it has potential exposure to the first person i think we get a lot of panic around this and so what i what i try to tell people is you are not even officially in exposure yet so trying you know i'm trying not to have people panic that they were with someone who's not tested positive yet but that person was exposed well well that means you haven't been exposed yet but again i think that the careful thing to do is really it's the it's the masking and the distancing and that kind of thing if you think that there's any possibility that you have been exposed those are important precautions to take so you're you're suggesting basically using common sense be extra careful we need common sense. We need everybody to be extra careful in a time period when this variant is so contagious. We hear a lot of uh, rumors about the um, the possible ineffectiveness of Johnson & Johnson in particular. Do you, do you hear that there are some of the vaccines that are not being recommended as much as one or the others? One of the others. You know, I think that there has been some um, press about Johnson Johnson and Johnson um, that the booster not that the Pfizer and Moderna booster being recommended over the Johnson and Johnson just because of some of the clotting risks that were associated with the Johnson and Johnson. But I think in general, what we're seeing and in particularly based on our admission numbers right now, the vaccines overall are working. We see that they're working because the predominant um, population that's being admitted is the unvaccinated. And particularly when you look really, when you really dig down and you look in our ICUs, that's the unvaccinated population there. So I think overall we are happy with the vaccines that we have and the results that we're getting from them. So if I happened to test positive for COVID uh, four months ago and it was assumed that I was probably exposed to the Delta variant, uh, would I might I still have some immunity from the Omicron variant, or is there no relationship? You know, I I wish that I could say that you were protected, but we're starting to see people who have had COVID two um, and some three times. Really, and that was going to be my next question. So you have seen at least a handful of patients that have. Uh, have caught the disease again and is it usually a, a big span in between or a short span or no no rhyme or reason to it no the ones that i've seen have usually been a several month um span between illnesses and initial illness resolved several months past then a second illness um in in several months to a year maybe even so for instance there are some people that got covid right at the beginning and now they're getting it again um, but again, um, for the most part, mild illness in those that are vaccinated. From what you've seen with breakthrough cases at the hospital, does it appear most of those breakthrough cases are um, with individuals who haven't been boosted? Or does there seem to be no correlation necessarily? So the one thing that we should all do um, after this podcast is make sure that we have our two doses of our vaccine and our booster. Of our current admitted patients, um, we have had 
we've had no more than not just of our current, but of our whole population, we've had no more than four that were boosted and they were boosted recently. So they were boosted, they, they were ill within three weeks of receiving their booster. Um, just as, uh, you know, people who have tested positive for COVID um, are increasing like crazy, you've got to be seeing that inside the walls of the hospital also in terms of of employees, right? We are. We are, unfortunately, um, you know, even in uh, employees that are doing the right thing and, and following the rules, um, this variant is highly transmissible. So we are seeing an increase in the numbers um, in our own employees. How about an update on uh, percentage of employees who are fully vaccinated? Yes, I do. I do have that for you. So uh, we have of our total um, employee population, 96% are vaccinated. Um, and re recall, we did make the vaccine mandatory. But even in a mandatory vaccine situation, you have a subset of your employees that will qualify for either medical or religious exemptions. And for us, that's about 3% of our employees. And then we have this 1%, you know, because 96 and 3 doesn't add up to 100. We have this 1% that are kind of like this miscellaneous bucket where they're either pending um, approval of their exemption or they've been on a leave of absence or, or that kind of situation. So I happen to have a, a relative who's been hospitalized recently, and I hear that uh, many hospitals are changing their visitor policies. What's uh, what's going on at uh, at Elmhurst as it relates to visitor policies? So I'll take that one. Um, we made a decision yesterday that we are going back to no visitors again because of the high transmissibility of. COVID and because a lot of visitors were not masking while they were in the patient rooms and it impacts our staff as well as, as potentially our patients. Although, you know, that's that would be between the patient and the visitor. We don't want our patients to get COVID while they're in the hospital, but it's really more for our staff because we need our staff to be safe. We believe that um, this is a short-term thing that we're going to have to go through because we're hoping that this high transmissibility and this rapid number of people getting COVID is going to only last for a few weeks and we will, as soon as possible, go back to allowing visitors. We do have exceptions. So if it is a pediatric patient or if it is a person having a baby, they can have their care partner um, with them, but just the one um, care partner that they choose. If it is somebody who has um, a disability, like they're autistic and they need a family member around, they can have a care partner. And if it is the dying, we will be making exceptions uh, for those individuals. But other than that, we are not allowing visitors at all within our organization at this moment. So now that we got through all the all the depressing topics, the ones that that are, uh, are bothering everybody right now, can I ask you a little bit about something a little lighter? And that is, can you give us an update on the uh, upcoming merger with North Shore University Medical? Sure. 
we are anticipating that we will be closed on December 31st, and as of the 1st of January, we will be one entire new organization. We do not have a new name. We are calling ourselves North Shore Edward Elmhurst Health at this moment, but um, eventually we're hoping that we will have a new name, but I would not anticipate that happening anytime soon. So we're kind of uh, excited that, that it's all going through and there was no roadblocks. And so we will hope to be the best community-based hospital system in the country. Well, I'm going to be the first one to suggest you have a naming contest in the communities that the <laughs> hospital serves. And uh, with, with final say to the administration, of course, but uh, <laughs> should look for some, for some good suggestions. I'm sure some high-paid marketing company We'll come up with that name. And December 31st, that's a whole three days away. Happens to be my son's 30th birthday. Happy birthday, Bill. Um, so <laughs> Happy birthday. Back to the, back to the merger. Um, and, and a question I asked right before that about visitors' policies. Do the two organizations already kind of talk back and forth and work on things like visitors policy, visitor policies and other policies, even pre-merger, so that – you don't you don't come up one organization doesn't have one policy that gets further from the other organization's policy and then you just have to change it a week or two later if that makes sense yeah it, it makes perfect sense and you and you would think that that would be an easy answer um, currently we have talked but we haven't consolidated policies because we weren't merged yet. And each of us are in different communities. And one of the things that we said is that we would be responsive to our communities. And so um, there may end up being something different for each organization, depending on what the community's needs are, plus what the uh, rates of transmission, et cetera, might be in that particular community. Um, but for the South region, which is who we are, which is Edward, Elmhurst, and Linden Oaks Hospital, we would continue to be consistent. What we are going to do is have, we have a um, steering committee right now that looks at how we do things in terms of policies, um, in terms of practice. And so what we are, will be doing once we are one big community is there will be a a system-wide steering committee that will evaluate what each of the practices are the North region and the South region, and then make decisions on what has to be exactly the same and what should be um, handled at the local level and could be different. So that will start right away, and um, that steering committee will have members from both our region as well as the North region, which is the uh, legacy North Shore. So one one off-the-cuff question for Dr. Mazir, and that is, do you, do you think the rest of your career – is is going to include um, COVID, and is this just here to stay, and is it going to be fairly serious for the next 40 years? You've got 40 years left, right, your career? Oh, my God, Rich. Um, no, no, and no. I mean, ultimately what I – you know, there are people way smarter than me working on this, but what I hope is that we get to a point where there is a combo COVID slash flu shot that we all get every year and we don't think about it and that it is not nearly the crisis really that it's putting on our healthcare systems right now. 
So I am going to remain hopeful that we get to that point someday, but I think that a lot of that hinges on really everybody that is not vaccinated to this point really needs to get vaccinated. Well, it's not that I don't enjoy speaking with you, but I hope a year from now we're not still talking about this and only this. Um, I really hope that uh, I agree. this is behind us. So, ladies, thank you so much, Pam Dunley, Dr. Michelle Mazir. I appreciate you taking time with us, and it's it's been too long since we've spoken, and nothing good has happened since then as it relates to this <laughs> this evil virus. So uh, keep up the good work, and uh, obviously for the short term, I know I'll be talking to you ladies again soon. Well, Happy Thanks, New Rich. Year, Rich. Happy New Year to you both, too. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.